0: Welcome to All The Things with Monique Dusson from the Center for Biblical Unity and Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello,
1: everyone. Hello. Happy Saturday. Welcome to All The Things. I'm Monique Dusson
2: And I'm Krista Bontrager, and this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life.
1: Yes, and today is Saturday, which means we are going to be talking about something related to God, the Bible, and real life. (laughs) We originally had a show planned with the one and only Dr. Jay Richards. Unfortunately, due to some communication errors, he thought it was for 6 o'clock Eastern time. (laughs) Not 6 o'clock Pacific time. So we are rescheduling that show. We are thankful for um, Dr. Richards and just his voice in the space of all things culturally related, especially looking at something as important as the WEF. And we do want to do that show live. We don't want to have a recording of that so that you can also ask your questions. Yeah. So we will reschedule that show and make sure that you have advanced notice.
2: And since we just found out that it wasn't going to work out a couple of hours ago. We were quickly uh, putting a show together, but we have an awesome show for you tonight in God's providence. We had pre recorded a show a few days ago, and so I quickly edited it together. And Bob quickly (laughs) rendered it out. And so what we're going to do is Monique and I are live right now. So we will take your questions.
1: You can share the show, put in your questions, all the things that we normally do on a regular show.
2: Yep. But we're going to uh, break the conversation up into like three 17-minute clips. So we'll watch a clip and then we'll come back and talk about a clip. We'll address your questions. And then we'll go back and hear another segment. And then we'll come back and talk about it a little bit more, give some additional analysis and take your questions and that sort of thing. So it'll have these live pieces in between and then we'll come back and do a wrap at the end. Yes. so a little different, but still live. Yeah. So we're here. We're still here as family all <laughs> together. <laughs> That's right. So what kind of inspired this show was we did a show back in November with our friend Sam Say about Christian, um, October maybe, about Christian nationalism. So tonight's discussion is sort of tangentially related to the conversation on Christian nationalism in the sense of trying to understand the different models of how to approach the issue of religious pluralism. What do we do as Christians when it comes to sitting side by side as citizens in the nation when we have a growing amount of people from other religious perspectives? And there are kind of two, or I would say three emerging models. And so we're going to sort of touch on one of those models tonight, which is the religious pluralistic Kind of approach to the question of religion. I would say another model is the secular progressive model, which we'll also touch on tonight. And a third model is what I might characterize as a Christian nationalist model of, of implementing some kind of deterrence to other religions and their practices. And right now in the public sphere, these three models are all competing uh, for loyalty and for persuasion. And we're very much in a posture of learning about all of this ourselves. Yeah.
1: As you'll see in some of my own questions.
2: <laughs> yeah. In some of both of our questions and watching it back tonight, I was like, "There's a there's several times where you could see me taking long pauses between the questions because I'm trying to figure out even how do I frame this? Mm-hmm where do i go so we're going to talk about that uh, back in december the satanic temple set up a display in the, iowa i believe the, yeah the capitol building of iowa and that was kind of the genesis for like okay we really need to do a show about it let's let's, let's watch a little news clip here mm-hmm.
3: the holiday season and even secular government buildings display decorations for holidays that are rooted in religion like christmas trees and menorahs for 14 days the satanic temple has erected a display alongside these major religious symbols inside the rotunda of the iowa state Capitol. lucian greaves co-founder of the satanic temple spoke to kcci
4: we're going to really relish the opportunity to be represented in a public forum. We don't have a church on every street corner.
3: Though the temple went through the correct administrative channels to present in the rotunda, the display is getting pushback. One, I hope people realize
4: spiritual warfare is real, that there are evil, satanic um, forces that are trying to infiltrate our state.
3: Iowa resident Shelley Flockhart said she was shocked to see the altar at the Capitol, so she organized a group to pray near the Rotunda's Christmas tree. Greaves says no one is being forced to interact with the satanic temple's display.
0: My feeling is that if people don't like
1: our displays in public forums, they don't have to engage with them, they don't have to view them.
4: It's a very dark, evil force. Um, And I truly hope people know how to battle that.
3: The U.S. Department of Justice says religious liberty is enshrined in the text of our Constitution. It's in the First Amendment, where the writers of the Constitution protected the practice of all faiths by stating, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The Satanic Temple is a federally recognized religion that does not actually believe in the existence of Satan or the supernatural unlike another religious organization, the Church of Satan. The Massachusetts-based tax-exempt temple says its mission is to encourage benevolence and empathy, reject tyrannical authority, advocate practical common sense, oppose injustice, and undertake noble pursuits.
2: Okay, so that was a little news club. Yeah. Kind of summarizing a recent event.
1: And kind of having people ask the question of, you know, should religious plurality even exist? Or is this something where we just say we're a Christian nation and Christ is the king and that's what we worship and that's the only religion? Or, you know, do we allow Christianity and Judaism?
2: Or the satanic yeah, temple. Yeah, or the satanic temple. Yeah.
1: You know, and if a plurality of religion is something that we want in America, why would that be? And how do we stand for that? Like, is, is there really good reason to stand for something like that?
2: And along the lines of those who are advocating more of the Christian nationalist model, mm-hmm. um, a former congressional candidate came from one of the Southern states. I can't remember if it was Alabama or Mississippi or something. He came all the way up to Iowa and destroyed the display, um, at, at some point after this news thing aired. And, that incident led to praise by some Christians and disdain by others. Mm-hmm. And, but it raises a lot of questions about how we're even defining religious freedom. Yeah. What is a religion? Mm-hmm. What qualifies as a religion? Um, does it extend to things like the satanic temple? If it's a government recognized religion, there's that. Yeah,
1: which, I mean, it's interesting because I don't think those in the satanic temple would recognize themselves as a religion, but those in the satanic church, which there is that distinction, may say, yes, yeah. they are a religion. It's it's all very interesting and confusing. We should probably start so yeah. that we can
2: yeah. get into it and
1: let yeah. you guys hear what the expert has said.
2: Okay, so we're going to talk to... Uh, Dr. Mark David Hall from Regent University. We asked him to come on and share some of his research about our nation's founding and some of the complicated issues related to religious freedom. Welcome, Dr. Hall.
0: Hey, Dr. Hall. Hi there, thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, thanks for joining us and all of our shenanigans and antics. Can you please introduce yourself to our viewers? Just a, a brief, who are you? And what are you currently doing? How did you get interested in talking about religious freedom?
0: Well, simply put, I'm a professor of government or politics at Regent University. I got interested in this field way back as an undergraduate at Wheaton College in Illinois. I had a chance to study politics there, and I had a chance to intern with the Christian Legal Society. And so I thought for most of my undergraduate career that I would graduate, go to law school, get a law degree, and then litigate church state cases in the senior year i I started thinking really my gifts talents and abilities are more in the academic realm i like the history and the theory and so i ended up going to graduate school instead and i have taught since 1993 full-time i've done a lot of academic things a lot of academic books and articles but over the last five years i felt called to write for the general reading public and so i've written um, books that i think you all are both aware of did america have a christian founding and proclaim liberty throughout all the land And these focus in on the founding era, but also um, I I do so in part because courts have said we must interpret the First Amendment in light of the founders' views. And so I'm weighing in on on these topics in ways that are relevant to contemporary debates. And over the last two or three years, I've had a chance to be an expert witness in a few um, cases um, involving religious liberty or church state relations. And so I've kind of come full circle. I'm, I'm not litigating cases, but I'm participating in them. So that's been a real fun time.
1: I was going to ask if you could start by helping us think through the First Amendment. Um, what does it say? What are some of the core commitments or tenets of the, the First Amendment? In
2: fact, I'm going to have Bob put it on the screen for us real quick so that we can all see it and then we can read through it. And then Dr. Hall can kind of help us unpack it a little bit. But it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances
1: it's a lot deeper than what most people most people just think first amendment freedom of speech yeah but
2: that says a lot more yeah Dr. Hall, maybe you can walk us through um, some of these core principles and why they're important.
0: Sure. Well, first of all, I'll mention that the Federalist, the advocates of the Constitution, initially argued that we don't need the First Amendment because if you look at the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress certain enumerated powers. And the Federalists said, look, Congress simply doesn't have the power to interfere with religious exercise or the press or the or speech. And so we don't need these amendments. The anti-federalists said, no, 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 we don't trust the national government. It's going to go beyond its powers. And so let's add some limitations to the national government. Um, Twelve amendments were proposed by the first federal Congress. The first or 10 of them were ratified. And today we call this a Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. Mm. The first of these is the First Amendment. Note. Verse that it, it's clearly aimed at the national government, Congress. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. We usually refer to this as the Establishment Clause, and it has to do with church-state relations. And it goes on to say, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, oftentimes referred to the the Free Exercise Clause, which protects our ability to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and to act according to our religious convictions wherever possible. And then you go on to cover the freedom of speech, the freedom of press, the right of the people to assemble and petition the government. Uh, But it was, and I have taught about all these provisions of the First Amendment, but it's my understanding that we're going to focus in on the first two, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause today.
2: Maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about how the concept of religious freedom has been historically understood and and defined. Um, give us a little bit more context of our nation's founders and and what their the anti federalist vision was behind the First Amendment and what that would accomplish.
0: Yeah, let me go back a little further than the founding era. If you go back to the 17th century, basically everyone thought that it's obvious that the government is going to protect and promote true religion. We're going to have an established church, tax everyone to support the church, the government will punish heretics, and that sort of thing. Beginning in the late 17th century, the early 18th century, a notion of religious toleration began to arise. And this said, yes, the government will still have an established church, but we will tolerate dissenters. And so in England, we'll tolerate the Baptists, and we'll tolerate, we'll put up with the Quakers. Um, We'll still ban them from holding office and from testifying in certain contexts. And we'll still tax them to support the Church of England, um, but we'll tolerate them. And this went on in America. Nine of the original 13 colonies had established churches. They tolerated dissenters, but still taxed them and sometimes didn't permit some of them to hold office and that sort of thing. By the time we get to the late 18th century, those Americans had moved beyond religious toleration to say, no, no, we need a more robust understanding of religious freedom. One that says everyone has an equal right to worship God according to dictates of conscience, to act upon his or her um, religious convictions whenever possible. And we see this reflected in the the unamended Constitution. For instance, if you look at the oath provisions, um, federal officials are permitted to swear or affirm an oath. And this affirmation possibility is aimed at members of small, tiny Christian sects, the Society of Friends, the Mennonites, brethren, who believe that, that Christians ought not to swear oaths, that they must affirm them. And so the authors of the Constitution wanted to ensure that these um, individuals could hold federal office. And so they wrote the, the, the uh, religious accommodation or exemption into the text of the Constitution. Similarly, Article Six bans religious tests for office. And the anti federalist actually complained about this. And they said, oh, my goodness, this means a Muslim or a Jew or even an atheist could hold federal office. And it does. And the federalists had to admit that that's what it meant, that there's religious equality in America. Now, they also usually would go on to say this will never happen in America. You know, America at this point, Americans of European descent are 98% Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic. Maybe there's 1,500 Jews in four or five cities, so it really seemed unlikely that, that that a Muslim would ever be elected to federal office. But of course, America has changed a great deal. As um, as I already said, the um, Federalists said we don't need to limit the national government anymore; it doesn't have the power to restrict re- religious liberty. Uh, but the Anti-Federalists complained and complained, and eventually, uh, the First Amendment was adopted, as well as the other nine. And I, I think what we're talking about here, the free exercise clause, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Sometimes if you listen to progressives today, they talk about a freedom of worship. Now, that's limiting what the First Amendment actually says. Clearly, the First Amendment protects the freedom of worship. We can go to our ch- churches and mosques and synagogues and worship God uh, however we feel fit, however we understand god to want us to worship him we could baptize babies or we could refuse to baptize babies and baptize adults we could take the eucharist every sunday or once a quarter or never at all clearly it protects that but it also goes beyond that it protects a free exercise of religion our ability to act upon our religious convictions whenever possible what exactly those limits are has been hotly contested to jump to an obvious Limit that everyone agrees with. If you were to have a worshiper of the sun god who believed that an infant needed to be sacrificed to the sun god, and that person was truly religious, he truly believed God would have him do that, I think we can all agree that the state could legitimately step in and say, No, you can't do that. We have good reasons to keep you from acting upon that particular religious impulse. Uh, But of course, there's a host of other conflicts that we have a cake baker who believes he can't bake a cake to celebrate a same-sex wedding ceremony, a Native American who believes he he needs to eat peyote in a a religious ceremony, and so forth. And so uh, the extent to which the Free Exercise Clause requires an exemption or accommodation from laws that are neutral and of general applicability remains hotly contested. Uh, But the general notion that it protects our ability to worship God and to act upon religious convictions I think certainly among many, many Americans, there's a great deal of consensus that these things must be robustly protected. On the political left, you're getting a shift away from that. President Obama, for instance, routinely spoke of the freedom of worship, not the free exercise of religion. And uh, obviously with uh, Obamacare, he um, Obamacare included mandates that would have required people to act against their religious convictions. It would have required the Green family to provide um, abortifacients for their employees. And they said, we can't do that. And there was a there was a um, big controversy in case about that. Um, but you know there was just no real concern for religious liberty among p- progressives in that debate and in too many other debates, I hate to say it.
1: The Green family being the owners of Hobby Lobby, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly right, that's right. So here's a, a question that I have as I'm listening to you talk about this, would it be considered like congressional overreach Then, if something like a pandemic happens and we are mandated to close our churches or to not assemble, even though that's part of our worship. Like, am I hearing you in in the right way and saying that that would be an exercise against religious freedom?
0: Let me tell you the test that I really like. It was a test developed in 1963, by the liberal Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. Brennan said this, a law restricting an ability to act upon a religious conviction is is, is permissible only if it's neutral. So it applies to everyone in the same way, only if there's a compelling interest behind the government doing what it's doing, and only if it does so in the least intrusive means. And so I think when we think about this and we can look at the restrictions that were generally put in place by state governors or sometimes state legislatures, not so much Congress, what we could do is we could look at uh, if if a state said churches must close, period, but other businesses could remain open, we could right away say that's not a neutral law that's targeting churches and therefore it's unconstitutional under the First Amendment. However, if you did have a broader law That said, every institution open for the public will be limited to having 50 people in it, and they have to be wearing masks. That would be a neutral law. And so uh, a church would have to argue that it has a compelling interest to be given an exemption from that law. And, um, you know, at least initially, early in the pandemic, I think that would be a hard argument to make. As the pandemic went along, it becomes an easier and easier argument to make. The government might have a reason for that policy, but I think it became increasingly obvious that it was a bad reason. So I would say, as we better understood the pandemic, you can make an excellent religious liberty argument against those sorts of restrictions.
2: It's really important, um, what I heard you saying too, is that there's kind of this sleight of hand that happens when the word um, free exercise of worship is put in place of, you know, free exercise of religion. Like those aren't exactly the same thing, but we often hear in the media, like expression of worship and that phrase acting as a substitute for free exercise of, of religion. And so we have to kind of be cognizant of that when when we hear that kind of, phraseology or linguistic theft happening in in the media.
0: I think that's exactly right. So you think freedom of worship and the mind immediately goes to what goes on in a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. And then we think of someone like a Jack Phillips, a cake baker who's running mm-hmm. a, a a bake a, a store. And um you know it's kind of hard to imagine. I know in some theological traditions you could say that the work itself is worship, but many Americans want to get that but if we understand that, look, Jack Phillips has a right to act upon his religious convictions when he runs his cake store. And you probably know that he has a variety of religious convictions, some of which you and I might not agree with. He refuses to bake a cake to celebrate a divorce. He refuses to bake a cake containing alcohol. He refuses to bake a cake to celebrate Halloween. And he refuses to bake cakes um, celebrating same-sex wedding ceremonies. And for him— These are all matters of religious conviction. So when Colorado tries to force him to go against his religious convictions, I I, I, I would hope we could all understand that's a restriction on his religious liberty, even though it's not what most people would think of as worship, the sort of activities that go on in a church, a mosque or a synagogue.
1: Dr. Hall, given that we live in a pluralistic society, shouldn't there be a strict separation of church and state?
0: Some people would argue that, and I I don't think you actually believe that. If we think in terms of worldview, imagine you have, let's just pick five worldviews. Um, You have the Catholic worldview, the Protestant worldview, the Jewish worldview, the Islamic worldview, and the secular worldview. If I were to say, well, we live in a pluralistic society, so let's only favor the Protestant worldview, you would immediately object, wait a minute, that's not fair. Um, What about the other four? And it seems to me by the same token, if you say, OK, we're only going to favor the secular worldview, I would object. Wait a minute. That's not fair. You're privileging one worldview above all others. What I would argue is for a robust pluralism. So, for instance, if we're talking school vouchers, uh, the state's going to give vouchers to parents to allow their them to send their children to schools of their choice. These vouchers should be available for parents who want to send their kids to Protestant schools To Catholic schools, to Jewish schools, Islamic schools, or secular schools. That's pluralism, and I think that's a recipe for peace. When we think about religious divisions in other countries, it usually comes about because one faith insists on being dominant, right? We're going to be a Catholic country or a Protestant country or Islamic country. Far better to let all um, all, all of these different traditions flourish equally. And please don't hear any relativism here. I'm a Christian, and I will try to convince every non-Christian I, I run across to become a Christian. So I think Christianity is a true religion, and I'm not saying everyone's equal, but I am saying I think our constitutional arrangements that say they will all be treated equally as a matter of law is a very, very healthy way to approach these questions.
1: Well, one of the things that I was hearing or maybe making up is that in a pluralistic society and looking at how we are treating religion under the law, if we are not treating one better than the other and we're treating all justly, that actually works out better for perhaps us in the long run.
0: Well, I think that's absolutely right. Um, it, if by us here you mean Christians, I, I think that's right. And so, so for instance, you have— um, you know, in, in, in Montana, until recently, you had the states say, OK, we're going to have a system of public schools and we'll fund some private schools, but not religious schools. And fortunately, a case went to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, Montana, you can't do that. Um, you can't discriminate against religion in that way. And so I think that makes more options available to parents in Montana and that's a good thing. And here, incidentally, let me emphasize that when I say religious, there probably aren't a lot of Muslims in Montana, but the Muslims in Montana should be just as free to receive that funding as Protestants or or, or Catholics.
1: Okay. Okay. So we are tackling the topic of religious freedom, in case you weren't here at the top of the the show. And so far, I feel like we have gotten to some pretty good ground. Like, What does the Constitution say? Like, where did this thought of religious freedom even come from? Um, And, you know, why was that wording even thought of, you know, to be put in the Constitution? And, you know, I think that Dr. Hall would say he's glad it's there. But recognizing the the founders, you know, initial thought for, hey, you know, we don't necessarily want to create just one type of of society but there i think there was an assumption that we would never be more than one type of society either
2: yeah there was a his thesis is that there was an operating assumption that protestants would always be in the vast majority mm-hmm. and while it was technically possible for a muslim to run for an office because no the, there's no religious test that's required um you know I, there was there was just this assumption yeah. that, uh, that 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 wouldn't just never happen you know um but we're living in a very different world now uh one thing that at this point in the conversation i'm just going to put this out here so that people can listen for it in the next segments at this point in the conversation what was going through my mind is he makes a few statements of in that first segment he says well the obvious that we all agree that there's an obvious limit to religious expression, or he says, I think we can all agree on such and such, or that there's large consensus. Mm -hmm. There may have been large consensus 250 years ago. I was trying to think in this point in the conversation, how do I press on this a little bit more? I'm a skeptic that, there is as much consensus as Mm is needed um, for there to be productive uh, respect for different religious traditions. But I don't know. Go in the comments. We want to hear from you. We are live. I put a little question in the chat on YouTube. Uh, What do you think? Should a country be an explicitly Christian nation or is a pluralistic model the way to go? We'd love to hear from you.
1: I was... um... I was just thinking about like the la- the very last thing that-, that we were saying. And I asked the question of, well, don't you think, you know, there should be a separation of church and state? And he was yeah. like, I don't really think that you mean that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as I thought about it more, I don't know that the separation of church and state isn't a good thing at times. So I'm still even trying to work that out because I- what I don't want is the government coming in, to my church and telling me, you must do X, Y, and Z. Now, if if we were a Christian nation, we wouldn't necessarily, I feel like, have to worry about that, like a true Christian nation, not like a progressive Christian nation. But the way our country is today, the separation of church and state, as I'm thinking it through, may protect us from having Governor Newsom come into my church and tell me that I must counsel, like a pastor must counsel a woman in the line of abortion or that he must marry, you know, quote unquote, marry a homosexual couple. And so I see some protections there.
2: And I think he would argue that that's protected under the First Amendment, that that type of separation that you're talking about Mm -hmm. is already there the phrase separation of church and state has a technical meaning that you're not using it in that way. Okay. Okay.
1: So that's why I was like, I don't know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So he would argue, I'm pretty sure that that type of separation where the government can't is implied implied and held under the first amendment, but we might have to litigate that and challenge it. So, all right, we're going to hear from our friends at impact 360 And then we will hear the second part of our conversation with Dr. Hall. Be right back. I'd always heard in church, like, go and make disciples, and they'd always say that verse. And I'm like, I don't really know what that looks like at all. And then when I got here, they
4: taught me, like, everything I was curious to know about, like, progressive Christianity and how to talk to an atheist and how to go about... Witnessing to someone without it being overly preachy
2: or insincere, and that helped me so much.
0: It's just been such an awesome week, you know, going through these questions and
1: really diving into them, and not just with me, but other Christians. It's not like an individual
4: thing. It's a together thing. We're really strengthening our relationship with the Lord personally, but also together. We have been given the greatest gift. We have been given life, and Propel is really made me realize once again how important it is to share that gift with the millions of people out there who
2: don't have that gift that's just ripe for the taking. (laughs) It said summer 2022. We got to fix that. But we did talk to our friends at Impact 360 and Propel still has openings for next summer. Yeah. And so it's a great one week program, kind of a summer camp. If your kid's a little hesitant about getting committed to a nine-month program.
1: Quick. They do one-week and two-week programs, and they're nine-month, but the Propel is the one-week program, and it really just introduces your kid to some worldview topics in a softer, you know, more gentle way. And then you're able to carry that conversation on until they can come back the next year.
2: Okay. Let's go back and hear part two of our conversation with dr hall i I can see the value of the this religious pluralism perspective you know from a pragmatic standpoint i can even see some biblical foundation for it in that the principle of of um being impartial that that is a critical feature that we have incorporated into our justice system in our country but what would you say is the biblical case for pluralism as a society and again we're not speaking of religious relativism we are not suggesting that all religions have equal truth we're going to engage in rigorous conversation to potentially try to persuade people of their own free will to become christians That there should be freedom for those kinds of conversations but people are also free to say no to Christianity or to say yes to other religions. But how would you make that kind of biblical case for that? I mean, it seems like if I look in the Old Testament, God's pretty clear that he doesn't, you know, set up shop with other gods next to him. Like, how do I think about that?
0: You know, Old Testament political and civil arrangements um, are, are, are very different than what we have in the New Testament and what might be appropriate in what is essentially a theocracy, a direct rule by God, I think you argues argue is not appropriate in the New Testament era. Um, a, a real simple argument to begin with, and you could go on and discuss other, uh, other scriptures, would be the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Um, I'm married to an Egyptian Christian, someone who emigrated to the United States when she was very little— uh, but if, as we know, there's still Christians in Egypt. Um, should Christians in Egypt be free to build churches? Do we want them to have that sort of freedom? I think the answer is yes. Well, if by even though it's an overwhelmingly Muslim country, and therefore I think it's reasonable to say, okay, America is still uh, majority Christian. Uh, but if a Muslim, if a group of Muslims want to build a mosque, um, they should be free to do so in the same way that we would wish Christians to be free to build churches in the middle east it doesn't mean that we don't try in america to shift back here it doesn't mean we don't try to con- to um, convert muslims it doesn't mean that we need to help them build a mosque we don't need to donate money so they can build it uh, but we certainly shouldn't as a matter of law disfavor them so i would say muslims jews sikhs protestant catholics should all be able to build houses of worship on the same terms none should be favored over the others
2: when, when I think about this issue, and here's kind of where I'm at in my thinking right now, and I'd love to hear your your feedback about it as as a scholar and coming at it from a more academic perspective. I think that a religious pluralism approach in the public square is important because of the Great Commission. When I meditate on Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus commands all of us to go into all the nations and preach the gospel. What is the environment where that can happen? Where persuasion, when I read through the book of Acts, I recently did a study on all the places in the New Testament where it talked about persuasion or, you know, preaching so that that people would have opportunity to come to faith. When I look at that, it makes me think that the environment where that could best happen is where there is kind of this competition of ideas or a competition of religions, much like the first century. I'm, I'm not persuaded at this point that the New Testament puts forward one particular model of government. I'm, I'm not persuaded of that point at the, at, right now. But if I look at it through the lens of the Great Commission, I am persuaded that we need to have an environment where a government protects the ability to preach the gospel and that there's an opportunity for people to say yes or no. I don't know. What What do you think about my very crude way of thinking about that issue?
0: I think you're exactly right. I don't think the, the Bible contains a clear model of government. And if we look to to it for one, a lot of Christian thinkers for centuries thought it would be monarchy, uh, maybe checked by other other branches. And so, you know, whether or not we have a parliamentary system or a current um, system of government under the U.S. Constitution or you know, something very different, you know, these are matters of prudence and we can use Christian principles to inform the actual political institutions we adopt. Um, But, you know, there's no one ideal, I don't think. Um, Similarly, with respect to um, the extent to which we're going to allow people to be free in terms of what they say and what they do, because conceivably people could be free under a monarchy, right? Even an absolute monarch could permit freedom of worship, freedom of religion, freedom of press. Um, So it really is irrespective of the type of government. But I agree, absolutely, that as a matter of public policy, uh, permitting people uh, with limitations, there always has to be limitations, but to engage in speech, engage in press, engage in um, sharing their faith, engage in religion um, without government restraints is the best policy. It probably is the most towards sharing the gospel. I, I think that's fair to say. But also sometimes there, there are Christians, you mentioned Stephen Wolf, who, who's perfectly happy, say we'll use the power of the government to impose an orthodoxy on people. Well, this is just really scary to me in the real world in which we live. Um, You're in California. I spend a lot of the time in Oregon. And when I'm in Virginia, you know, Virginia is a purple state. The other two are blue states. If Virginia, Oregon or, or, um, or, or California starts imposing orthodoxy, Um, It's going to be an orthodoxy we really don't like, right? Um, It's going to attempt to impose views regarding LGBTQ issues and um, religious uh, relativism and so forth that just will not work out well at all. So I prefer to keep the government out of this business. Let's attempt to win win people over uh, by making arguments, by loving them. We don't need the power of the state to compel them into the kingdom. And in fact, I don't think the power of the state could do that. It can't possibly do that. At best, the state might be able to force someone to say something that he or she doesn't believe. Uh, but what good is that?
1: One, what I hear you saying is um, that you and if I'm if I'm wrong, then please correct me. But I do think what you're saying is that you see America's version of a, a religious pluralistic society or um, an approach to religious freedom as being better than one that enforces a a. Oh. Or coerces. Yeah, coerces their people or their citizens into a form of religion.
0: I, I think that's absolutely true. And of course, what we're seeing in some of the, the, the deeper blue states is you are having governments attempt to coerce people into certain worldviews or practices that they might um, not like, you know, requiring teachers to use the pronouns of uh, that students select for themselves, even if they don't connect to the biological gender. And I think that's that's very inappropriate. I don't think the state should be doing that sort of thing. And I'd I'd like to see less state power in terms of enforcing ideology or religion, even if it happens to be a state uh, like Alabama, which might try to impose um, something that's much more compatible with my worldview. I just simply think it's inappropriate for states to be doing that sort of thing. And we're all better off if states stay out of that business. So
1: what would you say to, like, a church, a pastor, Christians who might become aware of a mosque that's go- going to be built in their in their community?
0: Yeah, I think I would make at least three sets of arguments. The first one would be um, biblical arguments. So uh, we started doing like the sort of math, uh, golden rule argument. I think there's good biblical and Christian theological reasons of uh, treating our neighbors with charity that should say we shouldn't oppose the creation of a house of worship for people who have different beliefs from us. And you don't even have to go there, right? It could be a largely Protestant town and the Catholics want to build a Catholic church. You know, they obviously should have the same right to build a house of worship as uh, the Baptists and the Presbyterians, and I would say the Muslims as well. Um, as well, I think you have strong constitutional arguments that a city can't discriminate against one particular um, religion or multiple religions for that matter. And then I think you have prudential um, considerations that oftentimes, as I suggested earlier, when you have a town that insists, you know, we're going to be a Protestant town and we're going to put disabilities on, on all on all non-Protestants, that's a recipe for controversy. And and I'm not against getting into some controversies, but controversies like that, I just don't think do anyone any good. And so for biblical constitutional prudential reasons i would try to convince the church or that pastor that they shouldn't oppose the building of, of, of a mosque now that mosque of course has to um it doesn't get special treatment it has to you know follow building plans and follow building codes and that sort of thing um just like any christian church would have to
2: i think the wrestle that we're in now though is like in in the world where People are religious in, in in a peaceable way, let's say. I can see a case for this pluralistic model. But in our current cultural moment, we're wrestling with, and some people would say it this way, they would say basically there's two options. There's either you've got broad Judeo-Christian values or you've got drag queen culture. These are the two options that are available to us Um, as secularism and secular progressivism increases as a worldview, both in numbers and influence and policymaking. There are those that would say, no, we need to do things to kind of punish that, to Mm de-incentivize that and to really bolster up the idea of America. As a Christian, an explicitly Christian nation with laws, values, and policies based on Christian principles, because the alternative is drag queen culture. Like, help us think that through in light of the very kind of beautiful. Model of religious pluralism that that we've been talking about,
1: or is that even true? I mean, are the only options the Judeo-Christian worldview versus drag queen
0: story hour? So, return to what I suggested before. You know, some of these people who write you know books, a case for Christian nationalism, and so forth, they're really engaged in almost utopian speculation about what would be nice somewhere. And someone like Stephen Wolf isn't even a nationalist; he's, he's a localist. Uh, but let's say if we take a, the broad principle let's say, state governments, we're going to give them the right to impose the appropriate worldview. Again, I ask you, what would that worldview be in California or Oregon? It would not be traditional Christian values. I can assure you of that. And so I would much prefer just to keep the state out of that business, to say, look, the state will have no business whatsoever imposing ideas upon its citizens or upon its schoolchildren. That's just not the job of the state and instead when we're trying to determine what sort of morality we the people of california will embrace what sort of religion um, those decisions should be made freely and because of persuasion and so what christians in california need to do is talk to their neighbors share the gospel explain why the christian moral position on abortion or uh, mutilating children is the correct one and attempt to win through persuasion now that doesn't mean we never have laws and in fact the last thing i mentioned. Um, you know, the, permitting children to have gender-altering, mutilating surgeries before the age of consent—I I think probably could be legitimately banned by the state. Um, but you know, generally, we we need to win through persuasion and not through an attempt to um, to legislate these things. And again, a state like Alabama might be relatively sympathetic to the sort of morality in it. it, it would attempt to impose on the people of Alabama. But again, if I'm called before the Alabama legislature to testify, is this a good idea? I would say, no, it's not. For biblical and Christian reasons, for constitutional reasons, and prudential reasons, you ought not to do this. Even in Alabama, we should attempt to win non-Christians to Christ through persuasion, not the power of the state.
2: So help me understand, you're not arguing that... We shouldn't enact laws or policies that wouldn't be informed by the Christian worldview. I don't think that's what you're arguing because there is some standard that we're putting forward. I don't want people to hear what you're saying as just a pure appeal to pragmatism or living peaceably with one another or this is just not a good idea. I mean, that's... Kind of a step away from relativism, so I'm trying to to make sure that I that I'm understanding the standard that you're that you're appealing to there.
0: Sure. So what what we've been focusing a lot on is using the state to impose views on its citizens, or maybe to favor some views over others. And there, I'm arguing that there's very good reasons to say the state shouldn't do that. Um, but I think there's no such thing as neutrality. Everyone engages in politics coming from a particular worldview, and Christians have every right to be motivated by the Bible and their understanding of Christian theology to advocate for policies that they believe um, would contribute to the human flourishing of all people. And so the Civil Rights Movement, maybe most obviously, right? The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., The Reverend Ralph Abernathy, the Reverend Andrew Young, and on and on we could go, right? Religious Americans motivated by their faith to fight the evils of Jim Crow legislation and to eventually overturn segregation and um, pass laws saying you don't get to discriminate on the basis of race if you're a place of public accommodation. To the extent to which members of Congress voted for these laws because they understood them to be required by their Christian convictions, more power to them. And I think those are excellent laws. And so, yeah, no problem at all with that sort of thing. I'm arguing really very specifically about saying Christians, by the same token, I guess I would say Christians motivated by their faith should argue against policies that would say require discrimination against non-Christians. So, yeah, Christians must be involved in politics. Absolutely.
2: Wow. Wow. Do
1: you see how serious my face is? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I smiled one time during this whole interview. I'm uh, just like, my eyes are squinting because I'm like trying to hold on to see. Are you saying what I think you're saying? I know.
2: I, I was, yeah, I, w- I feel like I was in a, a, a state of similar. Yeah. But there's so many good comments coming in on YouTube. Um, You know, uh, should we go to the one on Facebook first? Yeah, let's or, go to okay. Elaine's
1: comment on Facebook.
2: On um. CFBU Facebook, Elaine question. says, uh, with current ways of thinking, will freedom of speech collide with Christian evangelism or outreach or proclamation that might be considered hate speech? Well, and I think we
1: see that already. I think
2: we're already kind of there. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I think, going to continue to escalate. Yes, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't see anyone, you know, in who who isn't a, a believing Christian and some who already are believing Christians, but they just might be more in the progressive stream. Yeah. Snuggling up with like historic orthodox Christianity that actually has firm lines and boundaries on what is biblically considered evil.
2: So, again, I think it's helpful to think of it as a, from a model perspective. There's at least three competing models, I think right now in the public square as to how to handle this question of religion and values. There's the kind of the secular progressive model. There's the, Christian nationalist model well, and then the religious pluralist model.
1: Let's go back and in looking at each of those models again, like let's just kind of give some meat to the model. Okay. So you have the first model, which you're saying is, and I'm completely from, I was stuck on the the religious pluralism, but you're saying it's the secular model, like this, the secular this progressive, secular progressive, who I would essentially say is if they are a progressive Christian? Are you? Are you using the, the term in like the progressive Christian or just the, yeah, like, the secular progressive who is outside of Christianity? I think
2: the progressive Christian would okay. probably largely agree with the secular progressive when it comes to the relationship between religion and the public square. I think they would largely yeah. agree on that—that that it should be separate. They would say things like, "Our we shouldn't bring our value system to to laws and policies," although. They do that. They do that anyways. They just have a different framework from which they operate from.
1: And their value system would largely be different than the value system in some key areas, I'll say that, of the historic Christian.
2: Yeah. And then the second model is kind of emerging, I think, as the Christian nationalist model. But I think that there's a lot of work to do, there's not complete agreement. But there's kind of this idea of a nation can call itself a Christian nation. It doesn't mean everyone who lives in the nation are Christians, but that there's a broad understanding of we come at values from a Christian Christian, And we think that those things should be enacted into laws and policies to some degree. Yeah and then the pluralist model that he that Dr. Hall is largely talking about is kind of coexisting together side by religions coexisting side by side none is favored in the government they're all given equal access
1: yes and the there is an opportunity to evangelize to win people or persuade people to your pres- position or to your religion rather than Having some kind of forced um, ideas that would be implemented into law, or possibly even, you know, tax people or fine people if they did not believe in what yeah. you believed in.
2: And this is, I think, the great conflict that we're seeing play out in the public square, as the is really the the competition of these three models, mm-hmm. even among Christians, yeah, as to how to sort that out. There's so many good comments on youtube um natalie who is i hope i don't get in trouble for saying this but she's an attorney she's also a teacher um but she's got a lot of great comments but one of them that i want to highlight here is she says i agree with irreligious pluralism in society i think kind of roughly the model that dr hall is laying out but when we talk about government It must be founded on some basic truths. Mm -hmm. Which truths will we pick if there is pluralism? And this, I think, is a... uh, Natalie, I wish you had been here when we were talking to Dr. Hall because there's a much more elegant way of asking the question than what I could come up with because I was trying to figure out the whole time with him, like, what's the standard? Yeah. So
1: Reggie um, has... A very similar comment and says doesn't and it's just up um, from Natalie's comment doesn't law essentially enforce someone's truth morality right. on society so if the culture's worldview changes then. So does the law. And this is what we're seeing. Yeah. This is why in California, California is now a sanctuary state for minors who are fleeing from their parents because the values have changed. And so when, when the values change, these laws either are implemented or restricted depending on the way that the value system goes.
2: Yeah. I think the religious pluralistic model worked well when Christians were sort of in the majority or we're in we, a shrinking minority. E-
1: even when we had agreement as to what Christianity was, yeah, I think Christians are still in the majority, but there's a faction among Christians so that we don't even understand or have large consensus on what Christianity is.
2: Yeah. And then uh, Brandon had written in the chat, like, which version of Christianity? Now, I think that's my point. I think that most of the Christian nationalists that I've heard, um, like, for example, I read Doug Wilson's book recently, Mere Christendom, which I don't think it's a very well written book, but he does have a few helpful ideas in the book. And please don't go off like people have Doug Wilson derangement syndrome. Uh, I'm aware of all of his issues, but he can speak to one particular issue and. We can sort it out and see if there's truth there. Um, but I think that he's trying to appeal to a version of Christian nationalism that's very, very broad. Mm-hmm. It's not denominational. I think Stephen Wolfe also is trying to do a similar similar project that even includes Roman Catholics and, mm-hmm. and the Orthodox. It's very, very big tent when it comes to yeah christianity they'll usually cite like the apostles creed or something like that but at least then you know what the standard is and there's a baseline and so this is kind of my wrestle
1: sorry i'm looking yeah there are so many great comments um let's see
2: Let's go to a commercial while, okay, you, while so you, you look can, some more. Yes, and then, so you guys don't
1: have to wait for us to look through all of, <laughs> all of the comments.
2: But you guys, I'm so glad that this show worked out this way because we're able to kind of interact about the interview in real time. So, all right, let's go to hear from our friends at Maven about their upcoming conference. We'll be back in one minute.
4: The next generation is growing up in a culture where authority is undermined at every turn. And we can find examples from every aspect of culture, whether it's government or law or politics or entertainment or law enforcement, uh, the medical community. There's so many different areas where our young people are losing confidence in the authorities that are all around them. And the problem with that is that often translates into their view of God's authority. And in particular, their view of God's word as an authority. And so what we need to do for the sake of the next generation is we have got to rebuild the authority of God's word so that young people then look to God's word as a place of illumination, as a place where they can find out the truth about God and his world And that will then light up the world around them and make sense of the world around them. We need God's word to illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we can see God's word as the appropriate authority on all matters of life and faith. And so I want to encourage you, if you are any kind of stakeholder in the life of a young person, be at the 2024 Maven Conference. Our theme is Illuminate, and we are going to help you to rebuild the authority of God's Word for the sake of the next generation. Join us in Southern California on February 23rd and 24th. You can go to mavenconferences.com to register.
1: If you're in Southern California, we'd like to invite you to our meetup that we will be having during the Maven weekend. It will be on February 23rd before the Maven event starts. So you can come hang out with us and then we can all head over to Maven together.
2: Or you can just come to the meetup.
1: Oh, (laughs) the Maven conference is like one of my favorite conferences. I know it's a great conference. It really is. And so I encourage you, if you're in Southern California, come to the meetup and then come to the Maven conference. It is going to be a great time. Again, one of my favorite conferences.
2: Okay, let's go out. Keep the comments coming. We're going to talk at the wrap. We'll talk about some more of your comments, but we're going to go to part three right now as the wrap for our conversation with Dr. Hall from Regent University. And we're kind of edging into, um, you know, a little bit on the question of the separation of church and state, which is a common idea. You have a very interesting chapter in your book. Uh, I think it's, your book is called, I'm going to look, I want to get the title correct, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. You have a very interesting chapter in there on the history of the separation of church and state and where that idea came from. I know we don't have time to go into all of that, but I do want to let people know um, about your work on that area. But I think you're making an important point that the idea of not favoring a religion doesn't mean that it automatically follows that when Christians run for public office, that our worldview has no connection yeah. to... No bearing. Uh, no bearing on the policies or laws that we may try to advocate for
0: and this is one reason i really have come to dislike this phrase separation of church and state so if we're referring to the first amendment remember the wording congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion the founders understood exactly what an establishment of religion is Nine of the 13 colonies had established churches, and a number of them continue to have established churches, Massachusetts being the last to end its established church in 1833. And so it really is a very limited um, restriction that Congress cannot create an official national church, and now by extension through the 14th Amendment, states can't either. Um, It has nothing to do with all sorts of government uh, practices. Governments can legitimately fund private religious education, governments can build monuments included, that, that include religious imagery. And think about the words of the First Amendment for a minute. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The First Amendment is only a restriction on the government, whereas the, say, the, the phrase separation of church and state or wall of separation between church and state implies a restriction on— well, it, it, It it suggests a a restriction on the government, but it implies a restriction on citizens. That is, that we shouldn't, that it's somehow illegitimate to bring our faith into the public square. But the First Amendment does not say that at all. It doesn't restrict us as individuals, us as churches. It's only a restriction on governments, Congress, state governments, and local governments.
1: I think that's really helpful to consider, one, that while the government um, you know, has these stipulations as a citizen, I can, you know, bring my personal convictions, my religious convictions into the public square. But I also am, you know, wrestling with this idea, too, of like many of our laws and our justice system is built upon a lot of the Judeo Christian worldview, you know, it's why is it illegal to murder? Well, it's because there's a standard set in place, whether atheists like it or you know, people who may not value the sanctity of life the way that a Christian would. We still see the implications of our worldview on our larger society.
0: So, I think that's absolutely right, and certainly it's a matter of history, it's absolutely right. But I think today, especially in the pluralistic country America has become, I think it's something like only 64% of Americans even claim to be Christians nowadays, and plenty of those never darken the door of a church to read their Bibles or pray, and so we need to recognize Christians are a minority in America, and so I think it is absolutely appropriate for me to argue for certain policies and say, because the Bible told me so. And those arguments might be persuasive with my fellow Christians who take their faith seriously, but it's probably not going to be persuasive on those Americans who um, claim to have no religion at all or who don't accept the authority of the Bible. And so what I think we also need to do, we aren't constitutionally required to do it, but we should make our arguments more broadly in, in moral terms that are accessible accessible to everyone. So, for instance, if I'm talking about abortion with a um, atheist, I might say, look, can we agree on the principle that an innocent human life ought not to be taken without a very good reason? And those qualifications are in place to, to take into account things like just war and so forth. Hopefully the atheist will agree to that moral principle, even though he doesn't accept the authority of the Bible. And then we can say, okay, well, you agree with that principle. Let's talk about what a human life is. And let's talk specifically about what an unborn baby is. Do we want to define human life in terms of um, brainwaves or heartbeats or when two strands of DNA um, come together to form a unique strand of DNA? And hopefully I can convince the atheist that there are good reasons that don't involve appealing to the Bible at all, to recognize that what is in an, a, a pregnant woman is a baby, a baby is a human. Humans are not to be killed without very good reasons, and so that means the vast majority of abortions should not happen. They should be; they may appropriately be made illegal.
2: I think it slips by people, even how foundational principles of our justice system overall are founded on the biblical ideas like impartiality or the establishment of evidence through two or three witnesses, um, not taking bribes, that that is a form of perverting justice. Things that we just take for granted are actually rooted in the biblical worldview. And without those principles, our justice system would look very, very different. So to try to divorce religion from the public life would result in a very different culture and we see that manifest in other cultures around the world and so we have a very unique experiment here in America that that we've been on this journey you know for the last 250 years or so i, I think we need to have a deeper appreciation for that
0: these things always haven't always manifested themselves in the same way so, for instance, in England in the 17th century, you could be put to death based on mere circumstantial evidence. When the Puritans came over to New England and they started thinking about these things and passing their laws um, about them, they looked at the Bible as a guide, and they looked at the very passages you referenced and said, well, look, it seems in the Bible that one has to have two eyewitnesses to the same event convict someone of a capital crime and so they altered the english law to better reflect biblical law and better protect people so a lot fewer people were put to death in america than were put to death in jolly old england and i think this is an important lesson we shouldn't assume that somehow americans had everything right 200 years ago we didn't we permitted the institution of chattel slavery and fortunately christians looking to the bible reflecting in the bible came to recognize that this this institution is fundamentally incompatible with Christianity. And so they worked really, really hard to end slavery in the States. They succeeded in eight of the original 13 colonies, putting slavery on the, the road to extinction voluntarily. They banned it in the old Northwest and they were motivated by their faith in doing so. And of course, abolitionists continued to fight slavery into the 19th century for Christian reasons, inappropriately appropriately
2: so. So circling back to our opening, about the situation with the satanic temple Hmm. is that should that be considered within the broader conversation of a pluralistic uh, of religious pluralism should that be a display that we allow um what are your thoughts about that
0: so both of these cases involve what's called a limited public forum or limited open forum. So they're public land where the, the, the entity controlling the land says, we're going to open this land up for certain periods of time for outside groups to come and display things or do things. Um, so if we're talking about private land, uh, the satanic temple people buying a piece of private land and erecting what they erected, no, and almost no one says they shouldn't be free to do that. Um, and if we want to, if the public, um, the public library or the state capitol wanted to say no one from the outside will be permitted to come and, and display things, that's fine. You know, they can just have statues of uh, state leaders and flags and that sort of thing. So it really only becomes a problem when we're talking about public land where those who control the land, the state legislature or the librarian says we're going to open this th- this place up from time to time, for private groups to come in and do things. And so I think what needs to be done, I I, I think there still needs to be neutrality and fairness, but one might be able to come up with policies that would get at the goals that I'm very sympathetic to that are shared by many of my fellow conservative Christians. For instance, in a library, you could say, okay, we're going to allow outside groups to come and, um, and read books to children. But the primary purpose of this is to instill a love of reading and not to impose on the children a particular ideology. And so you know, we're not going to let the drag queen story hour come and basically you know, attempt to impose or, or 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 present their very flawed ideology. But by the same token, a fellow named Eric Metaxas wrote a book, Donald Drains a Swamp. And I haven't read it, but I gather it's you know, a real pro-Donald Trump book, the library might say, look, we aren't going to allow that either because really that's promoting um, a Republican ideology, a pro-Trump ideology. We aren't going to allow that just like we aren't going to allow the drag queen story hours, uh, but we're going to allow all sorts of other people to come and read stories when the primary purpose of what we're trying to do is instill a love of reading. I I think we could get away with that. Similarly, I'm not sure how um, Nebraska governed who did what when. But it does seem to me you could come up with policies that would say, OK, we're going to allow some outside groups to come, but they need to be these sorts of groups, right? Groups that involve civics or something like that. And so there can be some discrimination of that. You, you don't have to allow the pornographers to set up their um, their displays and so forth. Yes, I think there's ways of getting around that without saying the state is going to favor Christianity over non-Christian faiths. So that's what we want to avoid. Uh, but neutral policies that get at these things are one one possible remedy. And the other remedy is for Nebraska just to simply say we aren't going to allow outside groups to display stuff in the Capitol. And that would take care of the problem.
2: you have us some things to, to think about. And this is all in the spirit of Monique and I learning as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, so... let me be clear. I find that a hard issue because I'm generally in favor of liberal neutrality, where the government isn't favoring one thing over the other, and these are two of the hardest cases in my mind: the drag queen story hours and the Satanic temple display. Um, it's not an easy issue, so I, I've I've attempted to articulate my view. Um, some of your your listeners and some of your audience might disagree, and that's fine. I, I say let the conversation begin. I'm not pretending to have the solution to everything.
1: I I hear what you're saying. Like there there's many ways to kind of just avoid the issue altogether if we did have this idea of neutrality and you know we're not gonna favor this group and we're not gonna favor that group and we're gonna have strict, you know, policy and boundaries so that those things don't happen. But when something like that does happen, if it happens, how can we get farther in the conversation to potentially winning someone to Jesus?
2: As the secular progressives I would argue it, that it does form a worldview. Mm-hmm. And it is becoming a form of or a type of religion in that it guides people's lives. It provides, uh, it answers major worldview questions about purpose. Um, and it's a struggle. I think that we're going to continue to have in this American experiment of how do we differentiate between the historic religions of maybe the great, sometimes they're called the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and maybe a few other traditional religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, the Sikhs. but then you get in this weird gray territory of more recent or novel religions or even religions that are more indigenous that may have practices such as human sacrifice that, well, now what are we going to do? These, these, these seem to be very sizable problems that I'm not altogether convinced at this point Um, If we don't have some kind of objective standard to appeal to, I I don't know what religious freedom will morph into in the next 20 to 50 years.
0: Well, let me just suggest with respect to the last example you gave, I I think it's perfectly legitimate for the state to say um, people don't get to kill other people, right? We're going to have a law banning murder, And this law is going to apply to everyone, including an indigenous tribe that believes it needs to sacrifice someone um, to the sun god or whatever. And so that would be an issue where this law would override even a sincere religious conviction. And so religious liberty can't be a trump card that wins every time. There has to be limitations on it. Um, Historically, what we've said in America since the mid-20th century is if someone claims to be religious— Or to have a religious motivation we aren't going to doubt that we aren't going to have a court coming in and saying oh that's not really religious historically i've thought that's been a good approach what we've seen over the last 10 years though is we've seen some groups arise that seem to be pretty clearly um not serious the church of the flying spaghetti monster is one the satanic temple is the other there are people that kind of worship satan right wiccans and others but this organization, the Satanic Temple, is kind of in your face. We're just making stuff up in order to annoy Christians, and so I, for the first time, I've started thinking maybe we could go back to an originalist understanding of what the founders meant by religion, and use this understanding to say, yeah, um, Jews, Muslims, Christians, Hindus, Sikhs—you know, these are these are religions as understood by the, the the founders, and as understood historically throughout the history of the United States. But there are some things that we're just going to say, no, that's not religion. That's clearly satire. And you don't get the protection of the First Amendment. That doesn't mean you don't have freedom of speech and that you that we're going to arrest you for engaging in satire. Uh, but you don't get to appeal to the First Amendment, the Free Exercise Clause, to protect your ability to to do things. So that's something we have to think about, I think.
2: Yeah, I think those will be some challenges ahead for us as a nation to to grapple with. Well, thank you, Dr. Hall, for having this conversation with yes, us. Yes, thank you very much. It's been very thank helpful. Thank
0: you. Man. It's been my pleasure.
1: I offered a little smile at the end, probably because <laughs> my brain was like, "Child,
2: you need to face. rest me."
1: <laughs> my brain was like, "Rest me, please." Um, you know. Well, let's go to the comment you wanted to go to. No, before. I wanted to hear. Okay. You.
2: I want you to make your statement first. So here's the thing:
1: Do we want to live? And this is in Mo's way of thinking. Do I want to live in a country where I must force my religion or my religious beliefs on someone else? No, I, I don't believe that. That's Christianity. I believe that according to like Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, we go out into all the world, we evangelize. That is that that um, coming in to Christianity, according to like um, John one, it says to all who, you know, believed on his name. Like, there's an action in that. Like, we are also coming. It's not being forced on us. And I I also wouldn't want to live in a country where, you know, someone else has the... Like, if Christians lost their platform, yeah. you know, now someone else can come and impose their laws and their, their religious structure on me. So I can see the benefit of a pluralistic society. The problem is that we need Christians to actually have the... I almost said uh, to say um, something. don't be saying that. I know. We need Christians to actually have the gumption and the gusto and the courage to stand up to say in this pluralistic society I'm going to use my vote my voice my vote and my dollar to stand up and actually do something. I'm not going or to Or to say what to, religions
2: to, like that doesn't count. Yeah,
1: this doesn't this here doesn't count. Like this is an uh out of pocket way of thinking. I'm not going to allow you to come in and enact these laws we are going to use our collective voice and our collective vote to actually stand for something in a pluralistic so what we live in a pluralistic society we can live in a pluralistic society with with a competition of ideas and a competition of religions because we truly do have the greatest hope and we have the standard by which everything else is going to fall short yeah. but we don't we don't exercise that when we hide we don't exercise that when we shrink our voice mm. And so, the, I, I I can I can get on board with a pluralistic society because the laws that are would be made and constructed with courageous people who actually stood up and actually evangelized and discipled and led and said actu- things
2: like, "The Satanic Temple is a spoof religion. We're not allowing that. Yeah, we're we're not going to do that." I would say the same as for Scientology. I think it's a it's a spoof religion. I don't think they should have 501c3 status. You know, but if I'm living in Iran, I would want there to be a competition of ideas. I would want to be able to practice my religion freely. So there is that tension mm-hmm. of all right, we want to allow people to convert freely, yes. to deconvert freely. Mm-hmm to not pay taxes to the government in the name of religion. There's not government coercion when it comes to religion. And yet when we get into the conversation about values and what values we're teaching our children in particular, that's when it gets very, very difficult in that I feel like the pluralistic model starts to break down. And so... Um. All right, I want to go to Reggie's comment here, which I think is very thoughtful. Is it true that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, can't be hung in government buildings? We used that as our standard at one time. And yes, it is true that in some public buildings in our country, the Ten Commandments um, were put up and Some of them have been taken down. I can't speak to whether that's illegal. I don't think it's illegal to have the Ten Commandments up in public places um, uniformly across the country, but I could be wrong about that. But I do think that that question encapsulates the problem at hand is that um, there are some things in the Ten Commandments that we criminalize, Mm -hmm. like theft and murder. But there's other things in the Ten Commandments we used to criminalize, but don't anymore. Adultery. Like adultery. If we were to extend the principle of marital unfaithfulness out even more, homosexuality. We used to have sodomy laws. We don't criminalize thoughts such as coveting, Mm -hmm. the the Tenth Commandment, um, which coveting arguably could be underneath... um, theft and murder. Yeah. You know, as kind of a precursor to those and adultery. Yeah. Exterior sins. Mm -hmm. Um, but the question is for the Christian nationalists is that they want to codify the first table of the law. You shall have no other gods before me. Mm -hmm. You shall honor the Sabbath. Um, They want to...
1: So the first table of the law mean the first four? Yes. Yeah, the first four commandments. The
2: first four commandments about loving God versus the second table of the law is about loving our neighbor. Mm -hmm. The Christian nationalists, and there's there's a big tent here. There's a lot of different ways that they want to go about it. Some are like death penalty for people who believe in other religions. Others are like we'll make them pay a tax or we'll in charge will incur a, a fine if if they belong to another religion or we won't let them have public buildings or we won't give them building permits there's ways of inhibiting mm-hmm. those practices i don't i don't know if i'm ready to criminalize that yeah. and that is where like is there any ground between that and Drag Queen Story out. What?
1: Well, there's a lot of ground between that. I, I think even- But
2: that's the setup. I know it's
1: the setup. And and it, when we create setups like that, I feel like if I had Kathy Gibbons on from Filter It Through a Brain Cell, she would say, that's a fallacy. It's the <laughs> like the either or fallacy. Yeah. Like it's either this or it's that. And you have to ask the question of, is that really true? Because is it really true that if we- if we aren't enacting Christian nationalism and potentially not giving people buildings or taxing them if they you know, aren't honoring the Sabbath, then we automatically have Drag Queen Story Hour. And I don't know that that's true.
2: I don't know that it's true either, but I'm trying to figure that out from a principled standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Hall said several times, I made a little note as he was talking, he seems to want to appeal to some version of... Of natural law. He never called it natural law, but he wants to appeal to some kind of a biblical standard. I
1: think he used the word natural law in um,
2: maybe reference I miss, to maybe the I abortion part of okay.
1: murder, murder. Yeah. I so, but
2: he right. said he used words like, well, you know, hopefully we could get to consensus or most of us agree that this is not persuasive or make our arguments more broadly accessible to everyone or We can agree in principle that it's wrong to take a human life. Um, Convince the atheist that there are good reasons or almost no one says these are all kind of versions of consensus mixed with natural law. Mm -hmm. It seemed to be what his approach was. For me, the jury's still out on that as to whether or not I find that persuasive. But as we've said throughout the show, this is all very much, we're sharing publicly, like our learning curve and where we are. So, well, do you want to add to anything? No.
1: Okay, I, I don't have anything to add. At nothing at all. I'm still thinking through this, and, um, you know what separation of church and state actually means and actually is. What the pluralism or a uh, pluralistic society, you know, the benefits of that versus um, Christian national, I mean, Christian nationalism. Yeah. yeah. And so it, there's a lot to think about, but I'm glad that we get to do it with all of you. Yeah. This, this real time conversation and get to hear all of your thoughts as well. Your thoughts have really challenged me and made me think about a couple of different things as well.
2: So then we have a comment on YouTube. This I think this is a good way to wrap biblical principles are universal, no matter your religion, such as murder theft and bribery i don't agree i do not agree that every every culture agrees on what qualifies as murder i just i don't agree with that
1: now i don't if, know that if, if they're we're saying s- that there's a i don't know that 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 person is saying that the principles are agreed upon but that they are right no matter where you
2: are I, if that's what we're saying then i agree with that if there's a universal moral standard that is transcendent, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But whether or not that's agreed upon oh, yeah, by no. all people, mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. Well,
1: we can see that in um is it does is it India or um Sharia law that has honor killings?
2: I think that's in Sharia law or
1: um, widow burnings. That's in, in, India. in
2: Hinduism, so, yeah. So
1: I think that is murder, and we would see that as an example where it's it wouldn't be a universal principle regardless. Yeah. yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. So, no, I was right.
2: OK. Yeah. Great. See, I,
4: it, I got you.
2: I got you. Yeah. It's a t- these are tough questions. So we look forward to your feedback. Thank you for being in it with us. And um, the learning leadership. We like will continue learning these leaders. conversations in the future is something that. I'm sure we will revisit in some form or fashion. Oh, yeah, fashion. we have
1: to revisit it. I think these are conversations that we need to keep thinking about and keep thinking about together as family. You know, how are we discipling our kids to think about this, discipling the next generation? How are pastors and leaders having these conversations with their congregants? This, These are important conversations because our culture is constantly changing very swiftly to move away from a Christian, um, a Christian worldview. And to some degree, I feel like, and this is what we could have asked. I feel like our culture is moving away from a pluralistic society of religious freedom. I, I actually think that the secular, like a a secular progressive worldview, or it would be a more state religion. And there would be a doing away with of Christianity.
2: And yeah, we would we could argue that point as to whether or not the secular progressive model is itself a religious model. I, and, you mm-hmm. know, it is certainly a value system in spite of what they want to believe. But we are going to be finding ourselves in a process of pushing the boundaries of what constitutes as religious freedom. I think that debate is here to stay for a while. Yeah. So... All, All right friends, next week we're going to continue this conversation to some degree. We're going to be talking with Nathan Berkeley from the Religious Freedom Institute about kind of how to exist in a society where secular progressives kind of want to come for us as Christians. How what steps um what steps are they taking to come after Christian institutions and what steps can we take to help protect ourselves um, from the alphabet people and, and woke agendas from trying to penetrate and fundamentally transform our religious institutions. So we will continue this conversation a little bit more next week. We'll see you then. Bye, guys.
0: Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.